0: This is one of the greatest jobs ever created, ever, and I keep going back to, you know, being the six, seven-year-old walking to Ebbets Field, and here I am on the other end of the life spectrum, and I still get excited about it.
1: I could not be more fired up that my first guest is somebody who I consider a terrific friend and a legend in the business of uh, calling sporting events and a voice of generations, And I say that fully aware that, again, that allows me to pick up dinner the next time. Here on Just Getting Started is none other than the voice of Sunday Night Football, Al Michaels. How are you, sir?
0: I'm fantastic, Rich. Thank you very much. And I'll leave the tip. You can pick up the rest of the tip.
1: I am genuinely excited about this conversation, Al, because the number of times I've had talks with you about how you you got started in your career and the stories that you tell... Not only um, just around a, a dinner table, but in your fantastic memoir, you just can't make this up. Did I get that right? Did I screw up one of the names? And it's
0: close enough. It's,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your stories. So I'll, I'll just get right into it, Al, with you. How did you just get started in your career? How did it all start? Well,
0: I have to go all the way back to uh, growing up in Brooklyn. I grew up 10 blocks from Evans Field when the Dodgers were still playing in Brooklyn. And my father walked me over to Ebbets Field one Saturday afternoon when I was probably six or seven. It's the first thing I remember in life. I remember walking in and, you know, the grass was so green. And Vin Scully always talked about the Dodger uniforms being wedding cake, white, signage on the outfield walls. You know, the organ is playing, the whole thing. Jackie Robinson is actually in that game. Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, and a lot of the great Dodgers uh, of the past. And I remember thinking, I want to be here every day. This is the greatest thing in the world. So my father was a big sports fan. We lived within walking distance of Ebbets Field. And so I grew up with the Brooklyn Dodgers, knowing I wanted to be in the ballpark every day. And then as I got a little older, realized I could get in for free by getting a job as maybe the broadcaster for the Dodgers or some team down, down the line. So that was the genesis of my love for baseball, my love for sports. My father took me to hockey at Madison Square Garden, the old garden to the football giants playing at Yankee stadium. Also we had, remember the New York baseball giants and Yankees were playing there. So we had three teams in New York. So we could take the subway to the polo grounds, Yankee stadium. So that's how I grew up. And, And the NBA, when it only had eight teams, at Madison Square Garden. So you'd you'd have a doubleheader and, and four teams would come in on a Saturday afternoon. So I knew Rich exactly what I wanted to do from the time I was probably seven years old. And
1: how did you go about it about getting your start, about making this dream of talking sports, broadcasting sports? How did you make that happen?
0: When it came time to pick a college, I went to high school. We moved to Los Angeles, ironically, the same year that the Dodgers did. Christ. So I never missed a beat. Right. So the Dodgers at the Coliseum. But it's now time for me to go to college. And my father and I looked at colleges at that point that had radio stations and or TV stations that allowed students to broadcast games. There were very, very few of them. I liked living out west. I didn't want to go back east. USC was one of the schools and Arizona state was another of the schools that we, we researched and SC was in town. I wanted to have the experience of going away to college. So I, I chose Arizona state and uh, we made a trip down there when I was a high school senior, we talked to the people at ASU and they said, you know, at some point as a student, I'll get to announce some games on the campus radio station, which of course had a radius of like four blocks, unless you were in the, uh, the, the women's uh, the boiler room at the dorm, you, you couldn't pick the thing up. But it gave me a lot of experience. I go down to school and I wind up doing four years of baseball, basketball, football. I'm the sports editor of the the campus newspaper. And one of the great stories for me, Rich, was that as a freshman in 1962, I go down there, long registration line, probably 45 minutes before we can get to the, the place where we need to start filling out the forms. And I started a conversation with the kid in front of me who was a freshman from the Cleveland area, and he was there on a baseball scholarship. And I tell him what I want to do, and I hope to have the opportunity to broadcast some of his games. His dream, of course, is to play baseball, see where that goes. Ten years later, I'm announcing for the Cincinnati Reds. He's the third baseman for the Oakland A's. We're both a part of the World Series. Sal no Bando.
1: Are you serious? Oh, yes. So
0: Sal and I had that conversation in a registration line, and then I would go on to eventually get the Reds job when I was 27 years old. And Sal plays third base for the uh, soon-to-be three-time champion Oakland A's who beat the Reds in the World Series in 72 and won it again in 73 and 74. So Sal and I go back all the way. The following year, a guy named Rick Monday comes to school. Yes. And Rick had a pretty good career and still broadcast the Dodger games. And then when I'm a a junior, a freshman comes along by the name of Reginald Martinez Jackson, the one and only Reggie Jackson. So we went all the way back. The coach was Bobby Winkles, who would wind up managing in the majors with Oakland and California and coaching for several teams. So that's where I that's where I really cut my eye teeth in broadcasting well
1: I mean and I, I gotta have you tell this story I, by the way I had no I, I did not know about that story but you have to tell the story about how you called minor league games in Hawaii that I guess eventually did lead to the the job that you just referenced in Cincinnati I assume
0: that's exactly what happened so when when I, I get out of college, And I I, now I get married and met a girl in the tenth grade, and you know her very well, Linda Michaels. You know she's in the next room right now. Love it. So that worked out pretty well. And then um, I was looking for a job, so I wrote to all of the minor league teams, major league teams, NBA teams. In fact, the Phoenix Suns were starting up, and I had just graduated. And I wind up trying to get the Phoenix Suns job. He said, I just wanted to get into broadcasting. And the guy who's going to run that team is a guy named Jerry Colangelo, who is like 27 or 28 years old. I'm in his office, which is in a trailer at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix before the Phoenix Suns ever play a game. And Jerry couldn't have been greater. I mean, you go all the way back. And I feel like, you know, Forrest Gump uh, from time to time. So I wrote to all the teams. My father-in-law happened to have a business in Hawaii. And I'm, you know, I'm getting, you know, responses. Oh, you know, we wish you well, blah, 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 blah. But there's, there's no job that's forthcoming. And he says to me, "Hey, come with me to Hawaii, or meet me in Hawaii. Come over, you know, for three or four days." I know some people over here. There's a minor league team, so I reluctantly did. I wanted to do everything on my own, but I went over there, and he introduced me to an advertising executive who introduced me to a man by the name of Jack Quinn, who was the general manager of the Hawaii Islanders baseball team, AAA Pacific Coast League. And I got uh, an audience with, with Jack Quinn, gave him a reel-to-reel tape from Arizona State. This is in February of 68. And he says, oh, you know, good luck. We'll stay in touch, thinking, you know, he won't stay in touch. But on the cusp of the season in 68, his primary announcer, a guy named Marty Chase, was in a reserve unit that had been called to active duty. So I get a call on the eve of the season from Jack Quinn, who said, can you come over here and announce a few games? <laughs> and and that led to um, doing three years of the Hawaii Islanders, University of Hawaii football and basketball, high school football and basketball is gigantic. It was on television twice a day on the ABC affiliate there. I got 15, 20 years experience in three years, because in football, I would do five games a weekend, four high school games and a college game. Anyway, the, the Hawaii Islanders, we were the California Angels Farm Club, uh, 68, 69 and 70. And what happened was we wound up drawing about a half a million people. We were the most successful minor league team. Our manager, Chuck Tanner, winds up getting the White Sox job beginning in 71. The former director for the Angels, Roland Heeman, winds up going to Chicago, the longtime general manager. Those guys actually tried to get me to Chicago to be the announcer there. So they went to Chicago. It's now after their season in in, uh, 1970. And the owner of the team is a guy named John Allen, A-L-L-Y-N. Listen to the tape. I've got Tanner and Heeman trying to get me to Chicago. There's an opening there. He tells them, look, this this kid sounds pretty good. I can't bring a 25-, 26-year-old kid into Chicago and make him the number one announcer in the, in the number two market, which Chicago was at that time. So I'm very, very disappointed. But then about a week and a half later, out of nowhere, comes a call from the Cincinnati Reds from a man by the name of Dick Wagner, the number two guy to Bob Hausen in the uh, in the structure there. Can you come to Cincinnati? Uh, we want to talk to you. They heard about me. Somebody had sent them an audition tape. I go to Cincinnati. I get the job. And here I am at the age of 26 years old. I'm the announcer for the Big Red Machine with Pete Rose in his prime, Johnny Bench coming into his prime, Tony Perez in his prime, Davey Concepcion, uh, the older Ken Griffey would get there in 73, and Joe Morgan getting traded over in 72. And that's how I wind up on the World Series in 72, because in those years, Rich, NBC would use the primary announcer for the, the teams that are in the series. The home team guy would do his his games in like in Cincinnati. I did the games in Cincinnati. In, in Oakland, I did uh, NBC radio. And that's how I wound up doing the World Series. And that's how I want, wound up doing the series and and, and, and announcing my, uh, my college friend, Sal Bando, playing third base for the A's.
1: Unbelievable. I do have to, before you move on to the NFL, I, I got to linger here. Uh, your best Sparky Anderson story. I mean, what was it like being around him, managing the big red machine, Rose? G- give me your go-to. Give me your one of your favorites.
0: The greatest thing for me in Cincinnati is that I had to do a show with Sparky every day for 10 minutes. They called it the main spark. So Sparky, he he could have been greater. And Sparky was only about maybe 37, 38 years old at the time. And he looked like he was, you know, 100. be Sparky always was withered with the white hair. I got my PhD from Sparky, because not only did we have to do this show, we did 600 of these shows, because we did every spring training game, every regular season game, all 162, and then we were in postseason two of the three years. So I truly did about 600 shows with Sparky. So you had 10 minutes that so we had to be alone, and then he would oftentimes close the door, we would tape the show, and then we'd sit there and talk for another 20 minutes you know, off mic. So I, I learned so much from Sparky and Pete Rose. I always made it a point where we were on the road on the bus. I would try to sit next to Pete because he could go through the entire game pitch by pitch, telling me exactly what he thought, exactly what he was thinking. You had him, you had Johnny who knew everything Morgan comes over. I mean, man, oh man, I, I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, and Yale. All at the same time.
1: It's just amazing. And then you got to tell quickly, uh, or however you wish, the story about uh, you getting a recommendation to the Dodgers organization through your calling games in Hawaii and who was the one who did it and how. I love This is maybe one of my favorite stories I've ever heard you tell, Al.
0: And of course, it it involves the, the great Tommy Lasorda. So in Hawaii, our big rival, in 1968, 69, 70, was the Spokane Indians. The Indians were the Dodgers' AAA farm club. So, And and those were the Spokane Indians that had Bobby Valentine, Bill Buckner, Steve Garvey, Bill Russell, Davey Lopes. These were the Dodgers of the 70s playing in Spokane. Because of travel and how expensive it was, when a team would come to Hawaii, they'd be there all week. you would play seven games. So I got to know the Spokane Indians. Because they'd come over twice for two seven-game series. The manager is Tommy Lasorda. And Lasorda used to love to tell this story. He embellished it a little bit, but most of it is, is true. So he would get on the phone after every game. And Al Campanis was the Dodger general manager. And he'd report back. He'd go, Al, you know, here's what Valentine did tonight. And Garvey went two for four. And Russell did this. Here's how the pitchers did. So... It's I think the sixth game of a of a seven game series, and he, toward the end of the conversation, he says, uh, "Hey, out the Campanis. You know, this uh, I know you've got Vinny and Scully's great, and he's going to be there a long time. But there's this this kid over here in Hawaii. This guy's announcing the games. This this guy's really good. This 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 kid Al Michaels. I will tell you what, he's uh, just keep an eye on him. So they continue the conversation, and then at the end of the conversation, Campanis says to was sorta this Michaels kid this." guy you're talking about, how do you know he's any good? Tommy says, I've been thrown out of the last four games. I've been sitting down in the clubhouse listening to him. So what really happened was Lasorda gets thrown out in the third inning of like the third game of the series. Now in the fourth game of the series, she's so mad from the night before, he gets thrown out with the lineup card. Now in Hawaii, you don't go behind the dugout to the clubhouse. The clubhouse is 100 feet beyond the center field fence. It's a 500-foot walk, and you're being serenaded. So he's long gone. He can't sneak back in. He truly is in the clubhouse listening. He's The fifth game, I think he stays in the game the whole the whole way. The sixth game, he gets thrown out in about the fourth inning. So he's thrown out a three out of four. Now, you talk about you can't believe where you are. The yeah. umpire who threw him out of those games was Bruce Fremming, who would go on. To, to umpire 37 consecutive years in the national league so we go all the way back unless i use I, whenever i got an award i would have to bring the sword in to tell the story oh, tommy was one of a kind
1: i love it he's thrown out with a line of cards so he gets to actually hear you call the action so you actually know he, no question he, he knew okay. it. oh god i love that story So how did you get to football? How how did that come around to you finally getting to the sport, which is uh, amazing. You know, obviously, you know, your, your baseball career got you into national broadcasting. And then obviously you called so many games on the national level, including the famous earthquake game. But also the miracle on ice is something that is with you forever. But you are legitimately the voice of the NFL and have been for a very long time. How did you get to that chair, Al?
0: Well, in Hawaii, again, I go back to doing five games a weekend, four high school and a college game for three years. So by the time I left Hawaii, I had probably called 150 football games. And I would called all the football games when I was a student at Arizona State. So I had truly called like 200 football games. By the time I get to the Cincinnati Reds, who let me when the season was over, do a couple of regional games, football games for NBC. So I actually did, in October of 71, on a point-to-point telecast, I did Buffalo at Minnesota, and two weeks later, because Kurt Gowdy was tied up with baseball, I did Buffalo at the Jets. So my first two NFL games were in 1971, going just to to, to the uh, home market, or actually the road market, because it was blacked out. In the, in the home cities at that point,
1: who was in the booth with you?
0: Johnny, well, my my first partner was Johnny Morris, the wide receiver for the Bears, who still owns a lot of those records. If you hear me talking about Johnny when we do a Bear, Bears game, it's because you know Johnny and I go all the way back. And then a guy named Dave Kasurick did the second game with me. But what happened was when I I leave Cincinnati after three years, one of the reasons I left the primary reason is I go to San Francisco. They tripled my salary. So that's number one. But number two, the Giants were willing to let me miss games during the football season at the end to do football games on a regional basis. So in 74, I did about eight or nine regional games for NBC, and then we couldn't make a deal for 75. We're talking about in those years like the difference between like 750 and 1000 bucks a game, as ridiculous as that sounds. And I went to CBS for a year. And that led to, in 76, when ABC started Monday Night Baseball, they called me and I wound up doing the B game, which led to me being at ABC full-time for 30 years. And I eventually wound up doing the number two game on college football behind Keith Jackson in the late 70s and early 80s. And that led to the NFL in 86. It was a long roundabout way that, that, that I got there, doing some regional NFL games in the early 70s, a lot of college games between 77 and 85, and then to Monday Night Football for 20 years beginning in 86.
1: So a few strands to pull on here. So does that mean there is a CBS Sports Blazer in your in in your past, Al? Did you ever get one of those?
0: I'm not sure I got one and I certainly would not have kept it because Don <laughs> Cricky and I were the only guys in 1975 who did not get a postseason assignment. And we were, you know, we didn't oh. even get the Sun Bowl. And Don and I talked about that through the years. I mean, everybody else on the staff wound up, you know, getting a, a, an assignment. It was, you know, the one thing I do remember about the CBS years, I among my partners that year was the late Wayne Walker, mm-hmm. Johnny Unitas. I did a game with Johnny Unitas. What was that like? Johnny, Mar- Johnny Morris was now at CBS. I did a game with him. Uh-huh. And then I wound up doing like the last five games of that season with Hank Stram. And we had a blast. We loved it. And then Hank had been fired by the Chiefs. He goes to CBS. We do, you know, he, they were moving partners around left and right. So I had Hank for like four or five games at the end of the season. And then Hank goes back to coaching the Saints. A wonderful man. I loved Hank. And uh, uh, th- there's nobody who could who could tan more easily than Hank Stram, <laughs> who used to be sitting out by the pool. With bear grease on and one of those uh, tinfoil reflectors, but I, he was the beauty. I love him. What I, was I it like doing things. a
1: game with Unitas? Was he was he good at it? Was he
0: was he? Well, he was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, I mean, wow! I couldn't believe I'm doing a game with Johnny Unitas. Right, yeah. Are you kidding me? But uh, he, he he was he was fine to work with. But he was, you know, he he didn't have a lot of experience. I'm not sure Johnny did more than one or two seasons of some regional games with him. But the interesting thing, the one game I did with Unitas in the 75 season was New Orleans at Oakland. And I was living in the Bay Area at the time, so I was doing the Giants. And I drove over to go to the Raiders practice uh, in Alameda uh, during the middle of the week. And that's the first time I met John Madden. And I sat in John Madden's office. In 1975, and he was a big baseball fan, so he talked a lot about baseball. He listened to the Giants. You know, knew my work, uh, and then we talked about we talked about everything. We talked about how much we love tra- Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck, and then John talked about the fact that one day what he wanted to do is you know get a camper and just go around the country. So of course he coaches he coaches the Raiders. He wins the Super Bowl. He has you know the best record of any coach in history, percentage wise, who, who coached ten or more seasons. And then he didn't quite get that camper, but of course cruiser. he got the Madden yeah. Cruiser, and that's how John saw the country for a year. So you know, he was talking decades.
1: about the Madden Cruiser a long time. It was the Madden Camper first before it was the Madden Cruiser?
0: As the Madden <laughs> Camper, that's exactly what it was. And, and he he would be at the wheel, but John and I—that's the first time I met John, uh, and we saw each other irregularly through the years. Mm-hmm. And for, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, we became partners between 0-2 and '08, and, and I had seven wonderful, wonderful seasons. Okay, with Coach and Matt. so
1: the uh, be doing the baseball games with ABC, and obviously you said college football. Uh, you you meet you meet Keith Jackson. What what was what was he like, Al? Walk me through the voice of college football uh, for all those years after. Obviously, when you first met him, he wasn't that, but he became
0: that. Yeah. Well, don't forget what happened with Keith and you know, everybody forgets this, uh, certainly anybody of a certain age, is, is when Monday Night Football started, he was the original mm-hmm. play-by-play announcer. So Monday Night Football in 1970 was Keith Jackson, Howard Cosell, and Don Meredith. But Ruin Arledge, whose concept this was, always wanted Frank Gifford, one of his great and good buddies in New York. And Gifford couldn't get out of his contract at CBS in 1970, and it wasn't until 71. So Keith gets bounced from Monday night football after one season. And he was never after that, a really big fan of Rune Arledge. You can understand why, but Rune attempted to make it up to him by eventually giving Keith the number one game in college football, which at that point, I think Chris Schenkel was actually the number one announcer before I got there. And, And by the time I got there, Keith had now ascended to the number one role on college football. So Keith and I, you know, because we're, Doing, we're doing games on the same day really never did got to cross paths a lot but Keith was uh, Keith had a way with words that was so unique and so different and I mean one of the one of the greatest lines I've ever read Keith had done a uh, an interview with a student newspaper at the University of Oregon toward the end of his career and uh, it's a qA and they talk about, oh, Keith, you know, you've done the Olympics and you did Monday Night Football and you've done all the great college football games and you did hmm. baseball in the World Series. Is, are there any more goals? And Keith's answer was just one I don't want to die in an airport parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was quintessential. Keith, you know, the yeah. big uglies in the trenches by the banks of the old Intensi River here in Columbus, Ohio. Keith had a way with words. I mean, it just, it just flowed.
1: That is fantastic, <laughs> Al. I've never heard that one before. Oh, so and then obviously you mentioned his name. and Give me your first meeting with Howard, with Cosell. Give me your first one.
0: Right. So in 1977, now I join ABC full-time. I'm going to do the B game on... Monday Night Baseball, I'm going to do some college football at that point, and a lot of wide world of sports shows. So that we were doing a ton of boxing in those years, and they had uh, an event called the United States Boxing Championships. Don King was promoting it, and there was all kinds of uh, sh- uh, chicanery going on behind the scenes, and Congress was about ready to look into this. But Cosell was doing that package until all of a sudden it looks like this is going to be a congressional investigation. So in March of 77, I am ready to leave home on a Friday and I am going to do the pro boulders tour, I think in St. Louis, yeah. because because Chris Schenkel, who did, did that, was in Kitzbühel, Austria, covering covering skiing. I get the call at home as I'm on my way to the airport going, go to San Antonio immediately. Why? So. No, no, because we may have a problem tomorrow and we, we need you to help solve this problem for the U.S. Boxing Championships. So I go to San Antonio and Cosella's already there. But now they're going to take him off the show because they don't want him affiliated with this nefarious concept, right? I mean, the the, the records were being rigged and, and King was doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. What else is new? So I go into... I'm not even sure I'm going to be on the air the next day. A, ABC is still deciding whether to take... Howard off and put me on as kind of a sacrificial lamb because nobody knew who I was or or cared at that point. So I met Howard at dinner, and uh, the crew was out there, producer, director, you know, two or three other guys. And he couldn't have been he couldn't have been nicer. And that was the that was the good Howard. So we had fun, and I think he he took a liking to me because he he saw in me a guy who, as I like to say, had a little bit of rascal in him, you know. And I, I was not going to go down the straight and narrow and i still don't i think richie you know i'm i'm careful with where i go but you know i like to have some fun and i think howard saw that in me and uh so he took a liking to me at first and then of course uh uh, down the line we wound up doing a, a ton of baseball together
1: he is one of the reasons why i do what i do watching howard cosell do monday night football and just hearing him be somebody who wasn't as you know, he used to rail against the jockocracy, and and he wasn't somebody who. That's the name of his book. Of course. You know, I know your book is. You can't make this up. And his book was "I Never Played the Game" or one of them. And I I I kind of saw, you know, Jewish kid growing up in New York. I saw somebody who wasn't an athlete, didn't play, but get to talk at the highest level and also say things. He had me literally at hello, Howard Cosell.
0: Now. He took it to the edge. He was the first guy to really take it to the edge. And he was, look, when you do that, you're going to be an extremely polarizing figure. And that's what he was. And I think there was an article in TV Guide, maybe in around 1980, where he was the most admired and the most loathed sportscaster of his of his generation. So you loved him or you hated him. But Howard was he was of a, of a, of a different ilk. and and you're right there's no question he i think he made it easier for certain people to get in and do certain things that they weren't able to do until that time now of course we've taken it completely we've blown the top off everything where anything goes these days and and howard wouldn't be a he wouldn't be a, a unicorn today but but he was uh, one of the most fascinating human beings i've ever met uh, he could be everything from charming too cantankerous. I saw all sides of him. He was a lot of fun in the early years and he wasn't very much fun at the end. He got, he became very bitter toward the end. And it was, uh, it was a very inglorious departure from ABC and from network television. But at that point, you know, Howard had just, he'd grown tired. He really had. And, uh, uh, it's too bad that it it wound up the way it did, but unfortunately, it was not the departure that everybody wanted to see from.
1: It. I know, and so I guess before we just dive fully in in you know, the rest of our interview into the NFL, uh, your your best uh, wide world of sports assignment. Give me give me that one. The craziest, wildest. Give me give me the one.
0: Er, early on, yes. I so I one of my first trips to Europe. I had never been to Europe until I joined ABC, and now they're sending me over there. Truly, was the wide world, and, and you got to see it. So I get assigned to an event in Insel, West Germany. At that time, Germany was separated and um, it's in the Bavarian Alps and it's motorcycles on ice, which was a wide world of sports staple in those years. And so it was a quarter mile track, which was used for speed skating and for like regular track meets in the summertime. But in the wintertime, it's all iced over. And uh you have a bunch of Eastern Europeans and Russians at that point, and Bulgarians and Romanians, and, and it was these are the guys who were competing in this. No, no Westerners, and they would get on motorcycles, on motorbikes, and go around this quarter-mile track, x number of laps, with a bunch of spikes coming out of the tires. And that's how they got the traction, and they did this in front of ten thousand wild and woolly Bavarians, and they would start it at about eight o'clock at night. We were taping it in those years, and uh, but but the, the the tailgating would be starting at about three o'clock. So it's one of the great stories of all time. So Jeff Mason is the producer We've become a great friend. But I uh, but uh, Jeff had a you know has had a fabulous career. He says, why don't we do something different for the scene, set? Instead of you coming on in the yellow blazer, blah, 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 welcome to Inzel West Germany. What if you rode down the, the straightaway on the bike and then got off the bike, took your helmet off and welcomed everybody? So I'm the new kid on the block. I'll do anything at that point. But Rich, I had never a motorcycle. I would barely been on a Schwinn with training wheels. But I'm saying, oh, fine. That's great. So they now they they got to put me in some <laughs> leathers. So they find a Russian. So we, we go down to where they, they they're staging the bikes, and there's a Russian who's about five six and maybe 145 pounds. And at that point, I'm five ten. I probably about 180, and I'm trying to get in to these leathers. So here, I've never been on a bike. Now I'm going to be on a bike <laughs> on ice with spikes. I'm like this. They put the helmet on my head. That barely fits. I'm squinched up, and now I got to think about. It. I'm going to ride down the thing, and I'm going to do a scene set on top of it. So, having not been on a on a motorcycle, I don't know how I don't know how it works. So I'm on the hand. I got the handlebars, and I got everybody. there like the Russians are talking to me. I got the guy from is over. The Romanians. you know, I got 15 different languages coming at me at once, and all of a sudden, I mean, I'm revving it up, and I don't know what to do next. And I, I began to let the clutch. Apparently, I didn't know what the hell the clutch was at that point. I'm to, and fortunately, a Russian rider grabbed my right hand and, you know, got got the clutch back in, so it didn't. This thing, otherwise, I would have been. I would have been launched up there with Yuri Gagarin into space at that point. So we decided we we decided this would not be such a good idea after all. So now they got to get me out of the leathers. Blah blah blah. Now we're going to go do a conventional scene <laughs> set, but we're late. Oh god! So race is supposed to start 8 o'clock, whatever it was. I'm standing out there. The, the, the only the the Germans are there in the stands. They're packed. They're you know they're chanting. They're singing, and all of a sudden I, I start to do the scene set on tape. And now we have to stop. We have a, a technical issue. And all, next thing I, I hear is whistling, which, of course, is booing. And then I've got bottles whizzing by my head from the stands. So I have the interpreter there. And I said, what the hell, what, what happened? He said, well, your producer had the PA announcer say that it'd just be a few more minutes. American television needs about 10 more minutes before we can start. Th-. I said, what? I said, you know, it's going to be killed. I I got vodka bottles ready to slice my head open, and that was uh, that was motorcycles on ice, and then the so thrill was of
1: victory, the agony of <laughs> the
0: thrill of victory. I could I could have been the guy that, that fell off the uh, the ski jump. It would have been better than 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 that video. Oh,
1: oh man, no, I I and I know Jeff Mason. He was one of the integral founding producers and advisors of NFL Network. He's he's. He's just, uh, he's, he's one of one too, man. There's no doubt about that. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to Bluenile.com. That's Bluenile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, in the time we have left here, how how did you get to Monday night? How did that chair? appear and then obviously the rest is history from that now
0: well there there are two people I really have to you know I I talked about Jack Quinn early on who hired me to do the Hawaii Islanders and Jack Quinn I always thought of him as my trampoline he gave me the break he gave me the break to get into the business and you know everybody said oh you you know it would have happened anyway I don't know if it would have happened Rich you got to get that initial break so I go back to Quinn and then I go forward to 1986 to Dennis Swanson. Dennis Swanson came over and took over for Rune Arledge and and ran ABC Sports. Arledge had been running sports and news, but Arledge had spent 95% of his time in news and sports is kind of over here running by itself. Gifford was doing the games with OJ Simpson and Joe Namath in those years, Monday Night Football. Keith was on College Football. I'm doing the number two game. I'm doing Monday Night Baseball. So I've got a full plate. Dennis Swanson, a man I'd never met, takes over in January of 86. And two days later, it's announced that I am going to be the new play-by-play man on Monday Night Football. What? That came out of no... Really? That, that came out of no... For me. And then he, Dennis was a very big college football fan. And he had seen my work over a number of years. And he said, he said, you just you make the games very exciting for me. So I'm going, you, you never know who's listening. So he was watching a number of college games through the years. And he said, I want you in the booth. I want you doing the play by play on Monday night football. And I'm going to move Frank to analyst and it'll be a two man booth. Fine. Uh, wow. You know, after <laughs> I'm thinking well, this isn't actually, I was very nervous thinking, damn, you know, I really haven't followed the NFL that closely. Now I'm going to do Monday night football. And Frank was resistant to make the change at first, but then agreed to it. And we wound up doing the 86 season together. And then we added Dan Deerdorf in 1987 to make it a three-man booth. And we danced that dance as the trio through 1997. So I had uh, 12 seasons with, with Frank. And Dan uh, lasted through 98 and 12 with, with Dan as well. Those were good times. Those were great times. You know, it, it, we were—I don't want to say we were trying to save Monday Night Football, but the show had begun to leak a little bit, and I think it sort of came back uh, in the late '80s and through the '90s, and then we've had you know different had different iterations of it uh, until it went over to ESPN in 2006. But that's that's how it happened. It happened with Swanson putting me in that role. I, I was not reluctant to take it, but I was nervous as a cat. And in fact, in uh, the the first game that I did, regular season, was uh, the Giants at Dallas. And you've got Bill Parcells on one sideline, Tom Landry on the other sideline. It's Monday night football. And I was so nervous, I welcomed people to the 1976 football season. And then I, I caught myself, and I looked at Frank, and I said, well, it's already been a long year. <laughs> so anyway, and that that's how it that's how it got underway and you know here it is uh 20 years on monday night and going on uh, 16 now on sunday
1: night is it the same was it the same thing as it currently is now that you you get times before the games with the coaches and interview them and if so does that mean you you had your first one of your first broadcaster coaches meetings with with landry and parcells is that the way it went
0: yeah that's that that was the case that was the case yeah. wow landry and then uh, uh he had Paul Hackett in that meeting as well. Hackett, I think, was the offensive coordinator of the of the Cowboys. And then Parcells came into the meeting. It was funny because Joe Morris, who was their number one back, was yeah, holding yeah. out. And he was holding out at that point. You know, if I'm new to the game. At least I didn't know Bill at that point. So I said, uh, uh, how big of a deal is it if, if Joe doesn't play? He goes, not, not a deal at all. Like that. It's like, okay, you know, Bill would always – not um denigrate you uh, in any malicious way but it was always like no matter what question you'd ask bill had to be the contrarian in terms of an answer anyway i, I love part i wound up you know loving Parcells, covering it for a ton of years he almost became the analyst on on uh, monday night football in 2000 had an opportunity is that right it. i didn't know that yes he did yes and and passed on it yeah and i know i'm jumping around here no, but, please go but in night yeah no in uh so, you know, Frank leaves after 97, deerdorf has gone after 98. I worked two seasons with Boomer Esiason, 98 with Deerdorf with and 99, just the two of us. In 2000, Don Olmeyer comes in to produce the show and he wants, to, he wants to do something really different. And the really different thing that he did, of course, is we hired Dennis Miller. But that's a different story. Before we hired Dennis, though, that role was going to go to Parcells. Because Bill was now leaving football. He'd coached the Jets. Now you got the whole thing going on where Bill's going to move into the front office, maybe. This is the whole Belichick year. This is the not going to be the HC of the NYJ year, right? So you got Belichick getting the Jets job and then walking away from it to go to New England. Parcell's going, does he really want to do uh, front office work or does he want to go to ABC? And Bill and I, had two very, very long discussions on the phone. And the thing about Parcells was he always had all of the answers, right? We're, you're asking the questions. But we spent two long, two very long conversations on the phone. He must have asked 50 questions. Wanted to know how everything would work. It was great. And they he's, he's such an intelligent man. His knowledge of football, of course, is, is superb. And At the end of the day, he said – at the end of our second conversation, he said, I don't know if I'm going to take this job or not. I tried tried to tell him, hey, take the job. Come on out here. We'll play golf and do the whole thing. Oh, that's Uh, tough. I want him to take the job. And then he said, I don't know if I'll take the job. He said, if I do, I'll be the best analyst ever, ever. And I said, Bill, I said, that's all I want to hear because I don't want this to be a halfway house for you. Guys, get out of coaching. And come back into coaching, right? We've seen a whole bunch of them. So if you haven't gotten your coaching jollies, if they're not out of your, your out of your body, this means too much to the rest of us. And that's when he said what he said about he'd be the best ever. And of course, there was a part of me that knew that he had to go back to coaching at some point. And of course, that happened in '03 when he began to coach the Cowboys for four yeah.
1: seasons. Uh, he would he would have been terrific. I agree. Because that's the one thing, you know, You know, obviously Madden is one of the all-time greats at it because he talked in a language that uh, people completely understood and uh, sure. f- from folksy to plain to just, just descri- that the- describing the, ob- obviously, Collinsworth has that gene in him as well, the way that you could sure. just describe something and it doesn't sound like you're filled with jargon. It's just normal, plain English that makes sense, you know, and I think Bill would have been great at that.
0: Oh yeah, and, and with Madden too, and Collins, they make it fun too. They make it not only interesting, but there's a, there's a, a, a lightness to it too as well. There's none of the you know the three technique and you know the wide knot. We get into that too, but you you, you got to come away from that stuff and see the bigger, broader picture. And I've been fortunate with you know John and Chris over the last almost twenty years now. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. And they, you know what it is, Rich. It's communication. Those guys know how to communicate. They know how to connect with the audience, and that's why you know John just he understood what it was. He understood what it, what it means to listen to somebody. I mean, to me, I've always thought when I enjoy myself, in other words, you know, if, I, if I'm a, if I'm a listener, yes, I want to I want to make sure that I'm I'm what I'm saying is interesting, informative, and on point with with me as 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 a viewer. So you try to put yourself in the viewer's position. What does he need to know? What does he What does he have to know? What's fun to know? What's different? Um, and, and you know, you, you you try to you know kind of flip the mirror a little bit to to think of yourself as a listener as well as a uh, communicator,
1: right? And then talk about things that you know. And again, normally um, or plainly, I guess would be the way to put it. And you know, Madden, you, you had a, a seat next to him, hearing the way that he would communicate you know, the the thing that uh, will always live with me isn't from his game, but from his Pro Football Hall of Fame speech about the busts talking to each other. It just was, it was such a fan thing to say, like, you know, I and, you know, do they talk and what do they talk about when the lights go out? And then one of the last lines he said is like, you know, and I'm going to be having one of those busts in there talking, you know, forever and ever talking about whatever. And that was like almost poetry, you know? And it you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah, yeah. I miss him. I miss that guy, but obviously you and college. Encounter-
0: oh my God. I, really, he's, he's one of the smartest people ever. I mean, you, you look at John, he's kind of larger than life and he's got all the sound effects and the boom and the whole thing. And, but people don't understand, this is a man who knows a lot about a lot. And in my 70 years with John, I mean, we had some great, great times and most of them, dealt with like dinners or discussions that we had about things other than football. I mean, we, we spent enough time on football. We got it. We knew it. And we're doing a game, you know, every week, but John could discuss anything. He was a very curious man. Very. And of course, going around the country, that's what he always wanted to do. He, he loved, you know, stopping in the coffee shop in Goodland, Kansas and getting to know the people. And that's, that's, I think, part of the reason that John was able to connect as a communicator with, like, every demographic in every part of the country.
1: Well, Al, uh, I'm going to finish up with you the way I'm planning to finish up with all the other interviews for, for this 10-part uh, series of just getting started on NFL voices and broadcasters. And it's the best piece of advice you received in your career. What, what was it and from whom, would you say?
0: Well, I would say it, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's a little odd in a way. But I'll never forget, I loved Kurt Gowdy as a broadcaster. Loved him. And I got to do the 1972 World Series with him when I was doing the Cincinnati Reds, and, and we won the pennant. And I, I actually had met Kurt when I was in college, and he was uh, doing the Red Sox, and I, I, I played a tape for him at spring training. So he knew about me. Now we're doing the World Series together. And I'll never forget one of the things he said, and he was, you know, toward the end of his career, and I'm starting mine, basically. And he said to me, never get jaded. I thought, really? I'm having too much fun. But as you got older and you would, you know, proceed on in the business, if things necessarily didn't work out for you, if, you know, you didn't get whatever opportunity that you thought somebody else got that you should have gotten uh, or you get tired of, you know, you, you just grow weary of whatever travel or the, maybe the sameness if you're doing baseball, 162 games a year. So it was a very odd thing to hear when I was 27. But as I moved along through the years, I thought to myself, you know what, that's right. This is one of the greatest jobs ever created, ever. And I keep going back to, you know, being the six, seven-year-old walking in Emmett's Field and here I am on the other end of the life spectrum, and I still get excited about it. I still get excited about it. Walking into a stadium, the drama of the games themselves, it's never gone away. But I keep thinking about what Kurt said, don't get jaded, and I never will.
1: You're the man, Al Michaels. Love you. I love you. Best to Linda, because she's been part of everything that we just talked about for all those years as well. She has been. And um, let's, I, 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 this just scratched the surface, which is amazing. I literally could talk to you forever, but I appreciate the time. You're the best. Richie,
0: anytime. Take care, man. See you soon.
1: The one and only Al Michaels. They truly broke the mold with Al. And he is at the top of his game, as great as he's ever been. And what makes Al so great is so few people can meet a moment like Al. And we all know him meeting the moment for, say, the Olympics, say, when Malcolm Butler stepped in and intercepted a pass in the Super Bowl to win a game for one team that looked like it was about to lose and beat a team that looked like it was about to win. It's the least expected moment you could ever imagine from a guy that had to be so deep down on Al's list of players that he had to study and know, and know by name and uniform number, and Malcolm Butler, and... That's meeting a moment. And then there's also living in a moment. Obviously, again, his miracle play. The famed 2011 call on Monday Night Football of Antonio Freeman juggling a ball that looked like it had hit the ground, but he really had caught it. He did what? I mean, sometimes you just, a perfect call is somebody living in the moment and saying what's in our own heads without, obviously, the curse words. Like, he did what? I mean, it's a perfect call of a moment like Antonio Freeman. And then, of course, living in the moment like Favre doing what he did the night that he played after his father had passed away. I mean, I could truly go on and on. Those are two special aspects of a sports broadcaster that Al personifies together. But it's also knowing the nuts and bolts, not just down and distance. I mean, when NBC added... Terry McCauley, an official, a rules expert to their Sunday night broadcast because my buddy Mike from back in the day at NFL Network, Mike Pereira was doing such a great job on Fox as a rules analyst. Everybody started adding one to their national broadcast and they added Terry McCauley to the NBC Sunday night football broadcast. And my first thought was why? Because Al is the rules expert. Al is the guy who knows what is in the rule book and whether it applies to something that's under review or something that should be reviewed or why a clock has stopped. He is truly unbelievable like that. And in terms of meeting the moment, you just heard what his and living in the moment and knowing the moment all together, that makes him, you know, arguably the greatest who's ever done it. But the living in the moment is so tough to do to know what you're seeing in real time and know what it means and know how to put it in perspective and also know how to react to it emotionally that you at home can plug into hearing his advice that he got from back in his day from (laughs) Kurt Gowdy, don't get jaded and you could just hear it in the hitch in Al's voice uh, when it's time for a season kickoff, like we're hearing this week or a big moment that he's going to call Um, in week four on Sunday Night Football, which is the greatest piece of filet mignon steak that the 2021 NFL schedule is going to serve up, which is Tom Brady returning to New England uh, with the Buccaneers taking on, uh, at the time of this podcast dropping, Mac Jones, healthy and ready to roll as a rookie starter, wearing Tom Brady's college number 10 as TB12 returns. That you know that somebody's called so much and been there and done that, calling an Olympics moment that is the number one moment of the 20th sports century, calling many Super Bowls, like the one that I just mentioned with Malcolm Butler, calling a World Series during an earthquake, doing everything from minor league baseball, as you heard in Hawaii, and also doing... Wide world of sports and nearly dying in the process (laughs) because he nearly wiped out on an ice motorcycle or had a bunch of East Germans getting very angry that he was holding up the start of that event. That after having been there and done all that, that the broadcast that means the most to him, that gives him the goosebumps is his latest one and then his next one. So the greats get the advice and the greats absorb the advice and then the greats live the advice. And Al is just the best and I'm honored to know him. He spoke at my 50th birthday party. He's, you know, he and his wife and mine, uh, me and my wife go out to dinner and I just hear all these stories, half the stories that you heard here tonight, on this podcast are stories that I've heard before. And I'm even though I have them on my daily show, which you can also hear on the Cumulus Podcast Network, the Rich Eisen show all three hours every day, sometimes I don't have the forum for him to tell these stories. And, you know, that Tommy Lasorda story, I knew it. I, I It's one of my favorites of Tommy Lasorda talking about that that the Dodgers, even though they already have Vince Scully, should hire this kid and telling that to Al Campanis and the reason why he knew Al is so good at the broadcast is because Tommy's been ejected so much that he's actually had to listen to Al's play-by-play. I just love these stories and I can't wait to bring more of them to you throughout this entire series of special Just Getting Started where Jim Nance and next week Joe Buck will come along and tell you their stories and Kevin Harlan of Westwood One and Michael Strahan and Aaron Andrews of Fox and we're adding more guests as we speak over this 10-week span so keep on looking back here every single Wednesday for a latest episode of Just Getting Started this special podcast series of voices of the NFL rolls on we appreciate you taking in this one with the great Al Michaels